What's going on, gentlemen? Good morning, gentlemen. I was trying to think of some like fancy, classy salutations. Yes, yes. Welcome to the Gentleman's Roundtable of Body Recomposition. I'm your host, Jeff Packman, along with my fellow hosts, Austin Chan, <laughs> Coach Taters. Coach Taters, what's going on, fellas? How's your mornings going? Good day, sir. It's been going great. Had a couple of client sessions this morning again. Um, yeah, having my coffee right now. I know I said I was going to dial back on caffeine, but it's it's hard. It didn't happen. It didn't happen, man. That's okay. Nope. I I have been also dialing back my caffeine, which is nice. It's, it's cool that you're doing that in your 20s, Austin, because I didn't even start thinking about that till my 30s. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a period in time where, like, I basically consumed, like, minimal caffeine. Like, I did pretty much no supplements, no caffeine. And like, I, I felt great. And like, just somewhere along the lines, I'm just like, Hey, I should just start taking this. And like, once you start taking it, it just, it's almost, it's almost like a placebo effect that you just, you just feel like you have to do it as like a ritual. Yeah. I've been digging the stim free pre-workout though. Like, I feel like that's been really nice to just the ritual of having a couple scoops of pre-workout before you go has always been like a thing of mine, but having the the stim free is nice. Like I definitely feel like I have more focus and I don't know if it's placebo or not, but the pumps have been really good too, which, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you, you want to say about that. But yeah, I, I've been digging it. I like the stim free and it just fucking tastes good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then also for whatever it's worth, it's like you, when you have like a bunch of shit that you just have to take, it kind of like in a sense, it kind of like masks the like the real feeling of like being in tune with your body and really like listening to your body feedback. Where like if you just slam a shit ton of caffeine, sometimes you just don't know because then you're just all hyped up on caffeine. With like when really like your body's like trying to tell you, hey, you're fucking tired. Go get some sleep, or like you need to make sure your recovery is on point. Mm-hmm. But the caffeine's covering up otherwise. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Taters, what's up, man? You look exhausted, bro. I'm gonna be honest. You look straight up exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> Do you need some yeah. caffeine, bro? <laughs> uh, actually, <clears throat> my caffeine intake has gone up a little since we we had the podcast. When I was like, "Yeah, cutting down <laughs> caffeine." Um, yeah, my caffeine intake has gone up a little bit because I have been suffering a little bit with tiredness. But I've been kind of sick. Like, I actually took mm. two COVID tests on Sunday because I was convinced I had COVID, but they both they were both negative. Um, Good. And the first nasal swab like had a bit of blood on it and i carried on and it was like negative and you know it says like if there's blood on there you have to like disregard it or whatever so i did it again later the day that day still convinced i had covid but no not at all i just think i've uh i had like a chest infection or something so i haven't trained in the last week and been still trying to keep my steps up but even that's been quite difficult been real low energy uh, brain fog, that kind of thing. In fact, it's been going on for about a week now. I remember like last podcast we did last week, it got towards the end and I was just like spaced out. I went like after that podcast, went straight to bed. Um, and it's kind of been feeling pretty rough since since then, really. But I'm starting to feel a bit better. Um, but yeah, the caffeine's been carrying me through. My caffeine to ca- decaf ratio has gone up a little bit, I must say. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but YOLO, you know what I mean? YOLO, um, exactly. Yeah, but all good. My aunt actually had a really nice dinner with a friend of mine last night. Uh, we went out for Korean barbecue. Oh, yeah. I love oh, me man. some Korean barbecue. It wasn't macro friendly. Nah. Oh, no. <laughs> what did you have? What did you, what did you get? I'm not going to try and, tr- I'm not going to try and pronounce it. Um, but it was like, the middle was like some kind of spicy sauce with a mixture of chicken, like rice cakes or something. I don't even know what that was. Like some kind of fish cake oh, in there as well. Oh, is it a uh, topoki? Yes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And then around the outside, there was like cheese to dip it in, right? Um, there was egg to dip it in, and then like pieces of uh, corn. It was phenomenal, actually. And we actually got a side order of. Um, like korean fried popcorn chicken oh. and they came over there was like cheese on on top mm-hmm. uh and they like torched it the top of the cheese what kind of cheese do they do in korean i didn't even know koreans ate cheese well, dude koreans put cheese on everything <laughs> really I, I had no idea that's crazy mm-hmm. i guess it was like some kind of cheddar and mozzarella mm. mix it looked like anyway um but I don't think they were using the low-fat version. Yeah. <laughs> nah. hey, like well, bro, you got some fat-free uh, mozzarella you can put on that? <laughs> I was they watching... It and it was tasting fucking great, mate. Sorry. Go on. I was watching a cooking show. I watch a lot of, like, chef shit on YouTube. And I was watching one where there was this Korean barbecue place that was, like, a Michelin star um, Korean barbecue joint. And they were using, like wagyu like a5 wagyu um for their their short ribs so it was like this like dry aged and like short ribs are generally a pretty cheap cut it's not like super nice cut of meat but the short ribs i don't know if you guys have had like real korean short ribs before but they're like like, bulgogi mm -hmm. yeah yeah like Mm -hmm. the marinated bulgogi um yeah, Dude, those, those are that stuff is fire. I think that's my yeah. favorite thing to eat at like a Korean barbecue spot. Yeah, they're so good. In fact, yeah. we didn't get those. I didn't know if they were on the menu last night, but yeah, those are absolutely filthy banging, mate. My goodness. Yeah. So. And Taters, you're getting ready for your trip back home, right? Uh, how long how long till you go over there? I guess it's like 2 or 3 weeks. Oh, damn. I go that's I go to the UK, I live in Canada, and I go to the UK on the 3rd of May. I'm just looking at my one, two, three weeks, just under three weeks. I That's go. exciting, um, man. Yeah, mate, I'm really excited, actually. And Olivia was my daughter. She's She was nine months old when she was there last time, and now she's nearly three. So, like, she has she's like a different person almost. And I'm so excited to see her reaction to seeing my parents again, because Mm. she talks to them on the phone um, and like on FaceTime and she'll be like hugging the phone and kissing the phone. And she'll be like, yeah, nanny. Yeah. Granddad. (laughs) And like, and it's so cute. Um, But I don't think she remembers seeing them in the flesh. Right. And like now she's going to be like seeing them in 3d, you know? And so I wonder if she's, is she going to be shy? Is she going to be confused that, the people like she sees on 
on the 2D screen and now in real life, you know what I mean? So I don't know mm-hmm. how, if she's going to, how she's going to wrap her head around that concept that they're real people. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe she's going to be fine with it. I don't know. But yeah, really excited about that. And um, looking forward to getting some rest, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> looking forward to being like, there you go, nanny and granddad. Take care of Olivia. I'm going to go lie down for a bit, mate. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah how long are you going for again four weeks nice. yeah four weeks should be nice um but we looked into hiring a car like last time we were there we were there for three weeks looked into hiring a car and it's car rentals has gone up so much since we were last there and it's like extortionate now like we to rent a car for like four weeks was looking at like two grand two thousand dollars or something um so we don't know if we're going to do that or not because we don't need the car the whole time but it's a super rural area where my parents are Mm -hmm. so it'd be we might get um what's the word cabin fever if we're just stuck indoors all the time they should they should let you borrow the car right you can borrow a car uh, yeah it's not as simple as that though like okay. you can but you have to call up the insurance provider and you have to be mm. a named driver on the policy even if it's mm. a temporary thing so it's not like in the US or in Canada where you can just use the car and the car is insured it's like the the car is insured but so are the people that drive it hmm if that makes sense. So, and I don't know now that I have a Canadian license, I had to give up my British license to get a Canadian license. I don't know if I can get insured on a British car, unless it's like a higher car. I don't know. We'll figure that out, but yeah, I'll be just cruising around in my dad's car, mate, swinging in a whip. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Let me guess. He's got a Jaguar. He did have a Jaguar. No way. <laughs> my mum's got a Jaguar. The Jaguar. Um, the Shagwa. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. No, he's that's got cool. Volkswagen now. That's fun. <laughs> Typical. <laughs> Typical. Typical Brits. <laughs> <laughs> no, cool, man. I'm excited for you. That'll be fun. Thanks, um, yeah. Austin, you got your trip coming up too. I'm the only one not going on a trip, man. Yeah, what are you going, going to California? Yeah. yeah, did you say yeah. you're going on a trip? I'm going. I haven't booked the I haven't booked the trip yet, but yeah, I'm take Mello, my dog, to the beach down in Cali and just go chill out in the sun for a while. It's been cold up here in the northwest. We got we just got some snow today in the middle of April. Yeah, so. <laughs> what the fuck was up with that? <laughs> like literally know. the week before, it was like 70 and sunny. I'm like, nice summer's That's around crazy, the corner. Yeah. I don't feel I I feel bad though complaining about the cold because I was just on a podcast with Max Larock who's from Canada. He lives in Edmonton and they are at, they're they're in the like the negatives or something right now. So I was like They're always in the negatives, mate. Oh my god, bro. <laughs> I could not do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, well, they could move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this, this is true i think he owns a gym That's though true. so I don't, I don't think he's moving anytime soon fair enough yeah yeah do you get would you guys ever own a gym like if you had the the funds to be able to purchase a gym or do you guys have no interest in doing that ever 
it was actually my dream at one point to own my own CrossFit gym. Mm. Um, and then I've strongly decided I do not want that anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I quite like Eugene Tio's setup. I think that's like an awesome goal that he's, you know, he's invested a lot of money into his own space that he basically it's his own studio that he records from and it's a gym that he records from he doesn't have anyone pay membership to go there it's just his space that he trains in and he records his content there um i think that's really awesome uh but do i want my own gym with the paying members i don't think so because i don't want to have to deal with all the membership inquiries i don't want to have to deal with all you know staffing issues and dealing with member complaints and everything and not saying that that's not um like an awesome job to have and it wouldn't be awesome to have a gym but i just i don't think that it's right for me anyway i was i was general manager of the gym that i'm currently a personal trainer at for about a year and i found it it wasn't it wasn't the right role for me not at that period of time anyway like i went from being a personal trainer to then having to manage people and i didn't find that i adapted very well to that at that period of time um and i really like the idea of although with my business i think at some point i will have to outsource certain things i like the idea of keeping it quite minimal and like the term solopreneur, you know, like you pretty much like you've got your own thing and you're not at the mercy of anyone else. You know, I quite like that approach now. You're not tied down to a certain location. So that's kind of my rationale behind behind it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know, man. It's it's uh it's a lot to think about. I've, I did have a, like a dream of like having my own gym and just having like a lot of the, like my own equipment and like training clients there. It's like, it's obviously like a super cool thing, but like, once you realize that like, there's so much shit that goes into it. Like I spoke with, um, Austin Taloza and he owns a gym. He's down in San Jose, I think. And he's been doing it for like over a decade. And yeah, when we, we hopped in a quick call, cause I like, thought about asking him for advice like if I were to open up my own gym and that was something I like I was dead set on for a period of time but now it's like instead of being like 100% like man I really want to do this is my dream now I'm more like 50-60% like maybe I'll do it maybe I won't it's, yeah it's and he said it was one of the things like it's very different being a trainer and a coach at a gym versus like being an actual like business owner and like as much as people want to be like oh personal trainers you're like you're running your own business it's like i don't really think it's the same thing like literally having to manage an actual property and like know all the uh like the they're like zoning issues and like all these like other stuff that you wouldn't think you need to know like you have to know and also like with that said like the the, the amount of capital you need to like actually rent and get all the equipment and everything that's like crazy like um, Andy mentioned Eugene Teal. I think one of his Q and A's. He said like he spent like six hundred k on building his gym, which that's a over half a million dollars. Holy shit! <laughs> that's wild. That's wild. Yeah. Where does Eugene live? Because that space that he has is like pretty big. 
I'm like, he must be spending a lot of money each month to rent that space. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in Australia. I don't know where he mm. is exactly. It's like a really nice facility. Looks like it has like really high ceilings too, and like nice lighting, and it's like mm. an insane looking gym. Maybe he bought it. Maybe he bought the commercial space. You never know. Like mm. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he does rent it, but. <clears throat> Yeah, to he said that he used all the money from his tours, all the money he made from his like world tour, because uh, he used to go around and run seminars. He took all of that money and put it in, invested it into his gym, um, and he kind of went from having all of that money to then suddenly having none of that money. Mm-hmm. You know, so it took a lot of balls on his side to do that. Um, but now he's been able to like record so much awesome content with no one getting in the way, you know, and uh, I can imagine he loves, he loves it. But yeah, I just think like having, having my own gym was a real big goal of mine. And it was like something I was like, this is definitely going to happen. I'm definitely going to have my own gym. But as time has gone on and then I've transitioned into like an online business, it's like, Oh, like I could potentially, bring in a secure income for my family, help just as many people, if not more people through free content and paid services and work from home, be able to travel back to the UK, not have to manage a team of trainers, do most of the coaching myself. I can still do most of the stuff that I enjoy doing, which is the coaching you know, mm-hmm. plus learning a little bit about marketing and that kind of thing. But you can still do the thing that you actually enjoy and be just as successful and have a good enough income to support a family. Um, that sounds much more appealing to me than having like staff meetings and being like, who stole 10 bucks out the fucking cash register? <laughs> <laughs> you're not saying i'm not saying that that's going to be the case but you know there's mm-hmm. stupid stuff that happens like that and staff turnover you yeah. know who, what personal trainers are going to be happy you have to pay personal trainers a significant amount of money for them to be happy and like is that feasible like how much can you charge for personal training sessions and like then you have to think about who you're going to pay to potentially work on the front desk it's like you're going to pay someone minimum wage to work on the front desk and then it's like okay that person working on the front desk is the first person that anyone that walks into the gym is going to meet you want them to be as like enthusiastic as possible is someone that's getting paid minimum wage going to be able to do that and so like the costs all start adding up and you're not going to be a trainer like if you're managing a bunch of coaches that's going to be your job managing and overseeing like you're going to be the manager of a business not a coach you're not going to be a coach mm-hmm. like yeah. all your biomechanics bullshit is not going to be able to go down there Austin mate because yeah. you're going to just have to teach <laughs> all your coaches how to do it and then you're just going to be in the back pushing papers you know mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, and it's like originally like we all go into this because we love training clients and we love like doing that part of the job. But like when you start having to manage like other trainers, it's just a it's just a whole different role that you have to take on. But like with that being said, like if like you are willing to kind of step into that position and really do want to take a step back from training, it's like it could be a a role that you could fulfill and like basically you're just managing people and you're making income without having to like be on the floor all the time but yeah i mean different strokes for different folks like i definitely see myself like training now more as more of like a long-term thing like after thinking like 
man, this is going to be a lot of like fucking shit that I have to worry about that I don't really know if I would enjoy as much as I do right now doing this. I think it's more appealing when you are on the gym floor and you don't realize that being a personal trainer is a long-term job. It's actually a career. Because when you're on the gym floor and you're, you know, you're on your feet so much and you're training so many clients and you're just worn out, it's it might look more attractive to be like, well, I kind of want to be like the owner and just like walk around mm-hmm. and like talk to people. And it's like, <clears throat> here's another thing you have to think about too is like, Every single time you walk past a client, they want to chat and they want to talk for like five minutes because people like to chat. And Mm -hmm. if if you did that with every single person that walked by, dude, you'd never be able to get anything done. Like imagine Mm -hmm. if all of our clients that we coach online and stuff, imagine if it was all at the same gym and everybody wanted to ask questions. Will you check my form on this exercise real quick? And and it's just like – you would just be bombarded. You'd never be able to get any client work done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good point. Yeah. So no gyms, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least not in the near future. No. Maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the line if I change my mind. Yeah. I think it's... I think it's similar to when I was working in restaurants. It's like I wanted to own a restaurant and then I met restaurant owners <clears throat> and they were all miserable. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I don't mm-hmm. want to own a restaurant anymore. You know, same thing with being a chef. It's like you've met enough chefs that are just miserable. So it's just, it's the same thing. It's like you look at the people that you want to emulate or that you want to, you know, you want what they have. And then you look at their quality of life and there's, it's kind of hard not to, compare their quality of life with like what you want and if if they don't have like right now what i value is like less money and i value more like quality of life and maybe that's i don't know maybe that'll change at some point but um as long as i have the bills paid and i have a roof over my head like i'm not i'm not in the the fitness industry to make it rich i'm i'm definitely not trying Mm -hmm. to be a millionaire i'm just trying to set myself and possibly future family up for success and not have to worry about shit but also at the same time like um i don't want to be grinding 80 hours a week for the rest of my life you know so that's Mm -hmm. kind of why i'm doing what i'm doing i'm setting i am grinding right now quite a bit of hours to set my future self up for success so that i can retire or have a minimal workload at some point but yeah i do know that this is a long-term game Mm -hmm. yeah and then the reality is like people i don't know i don't know if people if the majority of people think this but like the uh the truth about owning a business is is like it's not fucking easy like you have to put yeah you like you said you have to grind fucking 80 hours a week and you probably have to do that for the first like three to five years to get your business up and running before it even becomes profitable before it even becomes like an actual thing that's like actually starting to like pay off like yeah. you're gonna put have to put so much work and you have to sink so much fucking money into it the first few years and you're not gonna it, it's not like a instant return kind of thing and i think i remember listening to a, a podcast that mike matthews did he said, like, the reality of owning a business, people think, like, oh, I run, like, a, like a million-dollar 
revenue business. But the reality is like, it takes a long fucking time to even get up to that point of generating a million dollars of revenue. And I think he gave a figure too, like typically running a business, whatever your revenue is, like it, it, it still takes a while, but like whatever your revenue is, it's about, you can probably take like a 10% cut of that towards your salary. And then of course, like that takes time to build because you know, the first few years, like even though, even if you're generating a significant amount of revenue, you're going to have to put a lot of that back into the business. Like it's not money that you can just instantly pocket. Like running a business has a lot of expenses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the good things about the online side of things. Like there's no real overheads. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't we don't have to pay rent uh, for a property, we don't have to pay to have equipment fixed. You know, we just have our laptops, mm-hmm. phones, internet, different uh apps that we use to help with our clients and that and you know costs are relatively low really so i mean that that's one reason why it's quite appealing to because it's less stressful than <clears throat> investing six hundred thousand dollars in in opening something you know so yeah for sure. yeah that's a lot of stress and being in debt is like something that i i've had experience with in the past and these days i'm trying to stay as debt free as possible and you know if you want to open up a a brick and mortar anything you got to be okay with being in the hole quite a bit of money and quite a bit of capital and that is an amount of stress that i feel like lays into your own health and fitness and when you are constantly stressed like i think this might be a good way to pivot because i actually had somebody ask me a question about stress and how that impacts body composition and and things like that. And I want to get your guys' take on this, but when you are stressed, it kind of, it's, it goes into the sleep thing that we talked about a couple episodes ago where getting poor sleep, it kind of like impacts everything else in your life, but also stress is such a big factor. And debt is a huge thing that people stress about, especially in the U S so many people are, driving cars that they don't own and you know have mortgages and have these ridiculously large credit uh lines that you know they need to pay back and just so many people living in debt and living beyond their means because in the u.s we have a crazy like we have a crazy like expectation of what people's lives should look like and if you're driving a car that's over 10 years old people will look down on you and they will think that you are not successful even if like it's your choice it's your decision to drive an older car because you choose to pay something off completely rather than being in debt and i never really understood this mentality i mean it is nice to have nice new shiny things but um i think a lot of these decisions come from a place of what other people will think of me if I don't have the nice things, if I don't have the shiny things. And uh, and so I, I want to kind of learn your guys' opinion on this, um, what you guys think about living beyond your means and, uh, and kind of like what your guys' experience with this is. There's a, there's a great quote that sums what you just set up really nicely. And it's most people go broke trying to look rich. Mm, That's a good one. Which is true. Like it's people are so worried about what you said about looking, 
trying to fit in with everyone else, even if it means they are pushing their financial limits in order to do that. So if it means that they are going to buy a car that they can't afford, so it makes them look as if they earn more money or looks makes them fit in with everyone else in their neighborhood, let's say, uh, because everyone else is driving a Tesla. Um, and it's difficult situation. Like everyone, when I drop my daughter at daycare, like everyone drives way nicer car than I, like most people there have a Tesla and like I rock up in a Toyota matrix. And of course there's part of me like, man, I, I'd love to have a Tesla or like some of these cars are like a Lexus, huge BMWs and stuff. Like it's quite an affluent area really. And so I do get it. Like I get it. Because those thoughts cross my mind, like, oh, I'd like to get, like, a Tesla or whatever. Um, but, yeah, you you have to live within your means, really. Like, because you will go broke if you're trying to look rich and trying to keep up with everyone else. Um, so, Austin, what's your take, mate? Um, I've, like... I can honestly say I've always been a guy who's like, I can live below my means pretty well. Like I've never like had the, the feeling that I wanted to like impress people. And I think, yeah, I, I just, I don't understand what's wrong with like society. Now. I think of probably a social media has a huge part with it, but like for the most part, I'm like, I don't understand why people like have this mentality of like why you need to get shit that you don't need in order to look a certain way. And it's like, yeah, like, I, I don't know, like, what the underlying reason is, but, like, personally for me, like, I, I will say, like, I do agree with Andy that, like, sometimes I, like, obviously, all, all of us do, we have these thoughts, like, sometimes, like, oh, it'd be nice to have this, like, shiny new thing, or, like, get this, whatever, to look cool, and look the part, but really, I think what matters is, like, what you actually have than what you, like, present yourself as, like, I mean, personally, I would much rather, like, not look the part and then like what people they decide to dig deeper and then they realize holy shit this guy is like pretty like well off he just he just doesn't like ludicrously spends it on like fucking shit that he doesn't need so yeah yeah it's kind of it's kind of funny how people also uh in in larger cities especially they will kind of like base your value or your worth off how many followers you have and i don't know if you guys have experienced this much but especially when i was in san francisco for a little while like people would ask me like what's your instagram like da, 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 and, and i'd tell them and they'd see that i had whatever however many followers and they'd be like oh my god you're famous like da, da, da. i'm like no that's that's not i'm not famous like they're like oh you must you must like you must be getting all these like cool endorsement deals and all. I'm like, no, not at all. Like, <laughs> and they start looking through my content. And even now, you know, with TikTok, people are like, oh my God, you got this many followers on TikTok. You're like famous now. And I'm like, no, not at all. Like that has nothing, like the amount of follow, the amount of followers I have does not improve my life like whatsoever. Like it, it just doesn't like on a daily basis. It just doesn't. And I saw a story from JPG coaching the other day where he said he had a full online coaching client roster before he ever blew up on social media. And it was just because he was, he is a good coach and he 
took care of his clients and he got a ton of referrals. And so anybody who's, you know, listening to this and you're a coach or, you know, whatever, you're envious of people on social media, have large followings, you and you want to have a business, you can still have a successful business without a huge following. And a lot of times people with huge followings, they haven't monetized it. They haven't figured out how to make money off of those huge followings. And when they do do it, it's kind of corny and it's kind of cheesy. It's like they're they're doing all these 20% off, use my discount code and this all this bullshit. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's uh it's really cringy when people start to sell out and what we do is we post helpful content and if people resonate with it, they hit the follow button. Like it's it's uh all you need is a couple videos to go viral on TikTok and you'll get a shit ton of followers. You know, it's not I think I gain most of my followers through like two or three videos on TikTok. It's insane. But that did not like skyrocket my business. It didn't make me a millionaire, you know. It doesn't work like that and I think people have a con that's a common misconception that people have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's not so much like yeah, for whoever's like, I think I think it's not so much that it's how many followers, but it's like why are people following you? And I think that's just really the root of it all. And it's like, sure, you can play the numbers game. Like, obviously, if you have millions of people, you're gonna have like enough people that like want to bind to what you have. But at the same time, if you build depth with a good amount of people, like you can have a successful business. And it does. It might not look at it from like the outside. Like, like for example, if you had a hundred people who like pretty much bought into like every single thing you have, you would have a very successful business and you'd be super like well off. Like even whatever product it is that you're buying, if you have lifetime subscribers of a hundred people, like whether that's maybe like even a hundred bucks a month, that is a lot of money that you, you're pretty much like well off for the rest of your life. Like, yeah. But, but, but like on the, on the uh, side of social media if you looked at someone with 100 followers you'd be like wow this is like this guy looks like a chump like he doesn't have that much followers meanwhile like this guy could be like super successful and they're just like super well off and you just wouldn't know and also there's still like a ton of like people who haven't even touched social media they've built their like uh referral network or they built their business in like their local area with just like maybe like a small town of like 1500 people and they're super well off they didn't even think about doing the social so, social media thing and they probably would never will just because they they already have that network network of people who you know pretty much live and live and breathe like whatever they like have built yeah i think it comes down to a bit of a, a status thing really if we bring the whole thing back together like with the your main question of like why do people go above their means with like buying stuff and trying to fit in and that i think it's like comes down to a status thing and a lot of uh status is like with social media your following count is an element of status these days you know like you do have a perceived amount of status with a, f- a certain following count, um, which is a shame, but it's true. Like even if I look at someone and I see that they've got a large following, automatically in my head, I'm like, oh, they must be some kind of um, credible source of information or whatever it is. Um, or they must have been posting regularly helpful content, but it's not always the case. Like uh, people buy followers and stuff, right? But but still, like, um, I think it does come down to that 
status thing. And I've heard Gary V talk about like attention is like the currency of the world or something like that. It's the new currency. It's like, if you have attention, it's like, that's the best currency you can have really, or some, something like that. Um, and if you have a large following, it shows you have like good status in the current society. And the same, if you're driving a Tesla, let's say it shows that you have status in the current society, <laughs> even if you are, defaulting your payments on that tesla nobody yeah. knows about that nobody knows about that except you you know but you're still driving around in a tesla struggling to make the payments but at least everyone thinks that you have paid got a tesla paid off or whatever um same if you've paid for all your followers at least all your people that follow you that aren't bought that are actual real people will think that you have all of these followers and so it's like perceived status um yeah, I mean, what do you think? I have an I have an Instagram account with I have two Instagram accounts. I have like a backup account and then my main account. My main account has more followers and my TikTok has like 10 times as many followers as my biggest Instagram account. And my backup Instagram account actually does better numbers than my TikTok account with 100,000 followers. So that backup account actually gets like better views and better engagement than my TikTok account with 100,000 followers. So it doesn't fucking matter how many followers you have. If if you can get attention and engagement like that's and you have people that resonate with what you're doing and you're actually helping people, the amount of followers you have doesn't necessarily equate to shit. It just means that you had a couple videos that went well. And especially on TikTok, it's it's very weird how the algorithm works. So a lot of your followers won't even see your posts ever. So it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is crazy. But it also means that a lot of new people will see your have potential to see your posts every time you post as well. So I don't let it like get me down or get me in a funk if like a post doesn't perform well. I just keep going. Um, the same way that you know if if. Uh, one of our clients has a an off day of eating or a shitty workout or whatever it's you know they don't just quit they don't just stop working out they just keep going you just hit the work you just hit the gym the next time and try to do better try to get better sleep or uh, recover better or whatever it is and so i think it's what we do on social media is kind of the same message and the same principles that we use to coach our clients with. And sometimes we forget that because it's like, be patient, be consistent, right? Those are the two main things, be patient and be consistent. And then what do we do as coaches when uh, when our businesses aren't doing well or our likes and engagement are down, right? It's like, we're not being patient and most likely we are not being consistent. So sometimes it's it's tough to take your own medicine and realize that you need to practice what you preach. And I'm guilty of this. I think we're all guilty of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought of a good analogy for like the whole followers thing. It's like, it's like when you see someone scale weight and then you immediately jump to like these conclusions of them when in reality that stuff doesn't matter. Like if you, like someone could be 160 pounds 
they could be depending on their build and all that they could be overweight or they could just be like you know as thin as a stick whereas someone who's like 250 if they're like pure muscle that person would be jacked out of their minds if that was that was someone like obese or for weight then they they wouldn't like look their best so i think yeah that's just like basing it like that's just kind of like a first impression or like whatever like first judgment whatever you want to call it like based on follower counts when you you don't really know like what other things like the metrics in terms of like how much depth are they building with this audience and like how much success do they really have like with this like follower count that they have yeah yeah so jeff what was your main question about stress just to bring it back because i feel like we went off on a big tangent there yeah i mean it's good i feel like it's it's good stuff to talk about, especially in the the age that we live in. But <clears throat> yeah, my main my main thing was stress and how how it affects our clients, how it affects us, um, and how it affects like somebody like let's say somebody who's trying to lose body fat. How would a high level of stress like something like debt and um, a crazy work life balance and taking care of a family like how would stress impact that person's progress and what kind of progress can you expect from someone who has incredibly high stress yeah it's gonna be harder if you're stressed Mm -hmm. obviously like for some people some people will shy away from eating when they're stressed not on purpose but they just don't feel hungry because they're so stressed for whatever reason these are generally people that struggle to gain weight um and for other people they are stress eaters and so they lean into eating for comfort because they're going through stressful periods in their life um i definitely fit into that category um and it is really difficult like if you if i'm going through a stressful period it is like it is so much harder to make progress towards my goal and it's even difficult to maintain progress during that kind of real stressful situation and so stress does have a real detrimental effect to the overall outcome of a goal i would say but it is really difficult to manage and so sometimes you know there's just understanding that there is going to be times in your life where it's okay not to make progress towards your goal but you still have to show up to the gym you still have to get your steps in and you still have to try your best to prepare good healthy food as much as possible um and just be okay with you might not be making that much progress towards your goal um during that period of time but there will be a time where you don't feel as stressed where you can capitalize on not being stressed and you can make progress towards your goal um so if you've got like a uh, like a weight loss goal but you are going through a really stressful period of time maybe it's best to put that goal on pause and main, focus on just maintaining you know and just focus on turning up to the gym uh, and lifting weights and doing things that you enjoy and getting your steps in and taking the focus off of the scales on a daily basis um because you've also got like the fact that stress increases your cortisol levels which in turn will increase water retention which in turn makes you heavier on the scales which makes you more stressed 
right? It makes you more anxious about getting on the scales. And so like, you've got that whole vicious circle and then like you step in on the scales every day and you're not seeing the results you want. Even if you are making fat loss results, even if you are losing fat, you could have that whole fat loss masked by the fact that you're stressed mm. because your cortisol is high and you're holding onto more water. The scale says one thing, but actually you are losing fat, but you just don't know. And so it's like super frustrating, like giving up. So yeah. I don't know. I think you can still lose weight during a stressful period, depending on how you manage that. Um, but it is much, much harder talking from experience of helping others and for myself. Um, so like things that I found have worked for me is, you know, setting time aside to get your non-negotiables done. Those non-negotiables are going to the gym. Like you should be going to the gym, whether you're stressed or not, depending on like if your stress is like what is causing your stress. Of course, if you've got like family emergency, then maybe you don't need to go to the gym, for example. But like if you're stressed at work, taking some time off and going to the gym is probably going to work out better than you not going to the gym. So go to the gym. And even if you're eating in a calorie surplus, that's the best time to go to the gym because some of that is going to go towards muscle growth. Get your steps in. It's healthy. You're going to be able to get some, clear your head a little bit. It's probably going to help with that. And then focus on sleep. Um, and then don't stress too much about not making progress because you're going to be able to capitalize on that later down the road. Do you ever have clients who are super stressed and they're they're almost more stressed over counting calories and macros and all of that and have you found that those same clients if you kind of give them some guidelines or recommendations on how to maintain without tracking um that might ease up some of that stress for them yeah i definitely have felt some clients do get stressed and overwhelmed by tracking um and sometimes giving like i started to give a range of calories in because i used to always give a set number of calories and macros and then just tell them they don't need to hit it exactly be plus or minus 100 calories or whatever whereas now i just provide that range so they know they they, they don't need to be perfect um but still tracking is does take more effort it can still be overwhelming if people aren't don't have that habit built up so then reducing it to just tracking calories as opposed to tracking calories and macros um but it's difficult if people really want to get a result and they're struggling to get a result and you need data to know what's going on with their progress to say, let's not track calories, because then it's difficult to know what they're eating. You know, we've I've done it a few times and not seen much change, really, in terms of progress. <clears throat> yeah, I have a client right now who's not tracking calories. We're just focused on maintaining and performance goals. She's got a 5K she's trying to run. And she's been doing – I basically set her up a three-plate, two-snack method where she is eating three plates of food, 
palm size of protein, a fistful of carbohydrates, and then about two fistfuls of vegetables at each meal. And Mm -hmm. then the snack either needs to fit in the palm of her hand, and usually it's like a piece of fruit or a protein bar or something like that, Um, or a a thing of Greek yogurt is usually what she has. And like, I generally know what she's eating, but she's also been able to eat out at restaurants and kind of like follow that same method a little bit more. And I know she doesn't follow it perfectly or to the T or anything, but I also have seen her waist measurement and her other measurements just kind of flatline. So it's nice. She's She is maintaining and she's not weighing on the scale anymore. And this was all stressing her out. She's lost over 100 pounds. And so she just wanted to maintain and stop stressing. And I think when you've been that, when you've been that overweight, you've been 100 plus pounds overweight, um, the scale and weighing in every fucking day and tracking calories for that long and all of that is so, it's such a mind fuck because there is some body dysmorphia in there. There is some worries that you're going to go back to your former self that, you know, and she, I had to convince her to throw away her old clothes. She had to throw away a whole closet full of clothes. And I think that right there is like, that's scary because you're like, what if I end up needing those clothes and I go back to what I've always been. But she had to throw away a whole closet full of clothes. She's got like five shirts now. <laughs> like It's like very minimal. 100 pounds, mate. That's crazy. Yeah, uh, over 100 pounds. Yeah, it, it's been a journey. Yeah. But she's maintaining now and, and she's stoked on that, you know? So yeah. I think getting her – that's obviously that's an outlier and that's a different um, – that's a different kind of person, different kind of client than maybe we were talking about. But I think if, if that's yeah. you and you're in that situation, you've lost a bunch of weight, get kind of just stop tracking your weight on the scale every day. Stop tracking calories. Find out how you can uh, get into maintenance and kind of live a more normal lifestyle. That's really nice to be able to do that and, and not stress over it. Yeah, I mean, I don't track at maintenance often but that's because i've been tracking on and off for several years really and so i can transition to maintenance and take a break from tracking and i'll just have to now and again just test myself to make sure i'm not going like way over or under but i i will still track my weight now and again to tell like if if i'm trending upwards or downwards because that's really the indicator if you're like maintaining or not um yeah or or, or measurements measurements right yeah i think yeah i think for me depending on the situation my weight fluctuates a lot like i i eat we're really different foods quite a bit so my weight fluctuates a lot i think for me measurements are much more reliable um I think that's that's also kind of genetic and based on like, um, and I don't have any science to back this up, but I think also some people's weights just fluctuate like fucking crazy. Like I have had some female clients whose weight can fluctuate as much as eight pounds on a daily basis, and I'm like, what is going on with you? <laughs> but that's crazy. Eight yeah, pounds, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think people. I think James Smith says something really awesome, and it's like weight maintenance doesn't just mean that you're going to be the same weight right. for a period of time. You know, it means that okay, maybe you gain like four or five pounds, and maybe those four or five pounds are fat, and then maybe you reduce yourself four or five pounds without really knowing it. You know, um, and so weight maintenance doesn't necessarily mean that you keep the exact same body composition 
for a prolonged period of time, you could gain a few pounds of fat and lose a few pounds of fat. And it's just like, you're just hovering in the mid zone and that's okay. Like that's fine because you're always going to be uh, going through some kind of change. It doesn't have to be that you're exactly the same every single day forever. Um, give yourself some wiggle room. Otherwise it's going to be, if you do see the scale trending up or the, if you do see that you've gained a centimeter or like quarter of an inch or something uh, around your midsection, then like it's not the end of the world, you know, 64ths of 93 thirds of an inch. <laughs> I also yeah, think that's that, a good point. I also think that tracking your calories is kind of a lifestyle. Like tracking your nutrition is a lifestyle. It's not, it's not for everyone. It's a lifestyle and you have to be, kind of cut out for it and this is it's for the people who really like the data you like the numbers you like knowing for sure whether you're in a calorie deficit or whether you're in a surplus or maintenance you like knowing that and you like the assurance of it i used to hate tracking calories and nutrition now i i enjoy it it's almost like a video game to me it's become a lifestyle i've been doing it for so long it's become a lifestyle so i also think there's merit to Doing things that you don't like in the very beginning and it may become just something that you're accustomed to and it becomes a lifestyle for you and doing the hard things, especially when you don't want to. Um, so, yeah, just because you don't like something now doesn't mean that you should stop doing it. <laughs> I think that people, mm -hmm. as soon as they find something they don't like and they're like, I don't like doing this. It doesn't feel good. It feels obsessive. And then they're like, I'm going to stop doing it. It's like that's not how you grow though. You grow through doing things that you don't want to do. You grow through doing uncomfortable shit. You grow through getting out of your comfort zone. And I think that people these days just want to take the path of least resistance all of the time. And it doesn't lead to them actually making any changes to their lifestyle and their habits. So mm. as much as I don't like being the hard ass on social media and I'm like, you know, I'm compassionate, empathetic person, it's like do the fucking hard things, especially when you don't want to do them, because that's what's actually going to change you as a person. It's it's doing the hard things, especially when you don't want to do. So that's what's going to actually change you internally, because I don't know, man. People are just soft these days. They really are. People are just soft, and they, they just don't want to put in the fucking work. They don't want to do You're shit that's uncomfortable. Right? They don't want to mm -hmm. do shit that's uncomfortable, and it's fucking – it's frustrating, man. I don't – I don't understand it, but at the same time, like everyone is on their own journey, their own path. So I don't know. There's, there's two sides of every coin, I guess. Yeah. And to kind of riff off on that, I think, yeah, like you said, people just like taking the, the easy route. And also like we tend to like, as people in general, like all of us, we tend to do the things that we, that we think we're good at. And so when we stumble upon something that's hard, that's something that we don't immediately grasp or something that we feel like we're bad at, we tend to kind of shy away from those things because we we don't like the way it makes us feel. It doesn't make us feel confident in our abilities to do that thing. So we like write it off. Whereas like if we were to give that thing an honest effort, like honestly, let's be real, like every single thing that we've tried, whether we are good at it or not, the first weeks months however long it, it takes us to acclimate to that skill we fucking suck at it like think about the first time we like rode a bike like all of us probably fell in our ass at some point and so you just have to give something an honest try before like writing it off and 
like you said, in today's society of like instant gratification, we expect to just like grasp things in like the snap of a finger. Like we expect things to be super easy right out of the gate. And that that's just not the reality of it. We need to like give stuff an honest try, be able to progress at that for a little bit of time before we decide like, hey, this isn't working. Like I've like give, given this an honest try and I don't really like this thing. Yeah. You, you guys bring up some good points there. And like, I feel like I'm not the most, um, I'm not the most harsh coach or I'm not the most, I don't know. I'm not very drill sergeant kind of coach or anything, but like I, what you were saying there of like, people don't want to do the hard shit made a lot of sense and I do find a lot of my clients or like a lot of the people that I've worked with hate the counting calories but it's like the number one thing that if they do it they will learn the sh- a shit ton about nutrition you know and some people are like oh you know could you not just give me a meal plan like and it's like, I don't really want to count calories. Can you not just tell me what to eat? And it's like, I could do. I could just give you my sandwich recipe for you to eat three times a day. Okay, go back to the last podcast. You have a full breakdown. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> you will learn so much about nutrition from counting calories for three months. And you will know about protein, carbs, and fats for the rest of your life. Okay, granted, you might have to, like, reintroduce counting now and again to make sure you're on point or to re-educate yourself now and again, but you will have learned the basics, and you will know that for the rest of your life. And people do shy away from doing the hard shit, and it's, it's hard to see it when people give up on, like, tracking because of that. And it's like the number one thing, like if they can get that right, it's the number one thing. Training's fucking easy. Turning up to the gym and lifting weights, getting a fucking pump is the easy part. Nutrition is the hard part for sure. But like if they can do that, that is going to be what pushes the needle. That is going to be what changes the game when it comes to their progress. You know, if they track everything and it's accurate, not only are they accountable to their nutrition, but us as coaches have the data to say we need to reduce calories or we need to increase calories. If that data is not accurate, it's much harder for us to assess that because we can't tell from pictures how much oil you've put into your food. You know what I mean? It's just or we can't tell from pictures what you haven't taken pictures of. But you could say, like, we can't tell if you've tracked everything, of course. But if you're accurate with your tracking as best as possible, we've got data to say, like, okay, you have lost no weight for the last three weeks. You've been eating 2,500 calories. That means that your your maintenance is around 2,500 calories. Okay, so reduce down to 2,000, you'll lose about a pound a week. Mm-hmm. That's a very in very simple terms because – there's around 3,500 calories in a pound of fat. Divide that by seven is 500 calories per day to be a pound a week, basically, very simple terms. So, like, we literally have the math to figure that out if we have accurate data. And so, like, if you just count your calories, damn it, 
and your macros, you know, like, I know it's not easy, but it's not like, it's, of course, it's not easy to lose like 15 pounds. It's quite, it's not easy. It's easy to gain 15 pounds, but it's not easy to lose 15 pounds. You've got to put in some work. I'm afraid. Like, that's the thing. Like, people are afraid of work these days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Get Kim Kardashian on here, mate. Yeah. <laughs> people are afraid of work these days. I was like, I knew I, I, knew I knew that from somewhere. Yeah. yeah people, before. I like what you said about training is the easy part and the eating is the hard part. It's like, I... I agree. And the reason I agree is because training is a lot of times, you know, we're talking three or four hours a week of training, right? But eating is outside of the gym. It's literally everyone has to eat. Everyone is ingrained to eat. So we all are eating. We all have different nutrition guidelines. We all have different food that we like. And so eating is like where the emotions come into play. Eating is like where your your culture comes into play, your your life experiences come into play, like what you ate as a kid that made you feel warm and fuzzy when mommy wasn't home, like all of that shit plays a role. So stress eating, emotional eating, all of that stuff is a real thing. Binge eating, uh, restriction, you know, labeling food as good or bad, all of that comes into play. Whereas training is a little bit more, you just go in and you do your program. And you do it to the best of your ability. Tracking is different because, again, as coaches, we give our clients flexibility to eat what they want as long as it follows some simple guidelines. Follow these simple guidelines and eat what you want within those guidelines. So it gives it forces people to be critical thinkers and think for themselves. But, again, here comes in the, the inaccuracy. Here comes in the self-reporting that we know people are generally not good at self-reporting their calories. Dietitians are not good at self-reporting their calories. There's studies done on this. Dietitians are notoriously bad at tracking their calories. So then what is somebody who has, who's been yo-yo dieting for 20 plus years, who's been on and off this fad diet, this crash diet, who has emotional eating issues, who has poor self-esteem and mental health issues, how are they going to be self-reporting their calories? Probably not accurately, right? So we have to take all that into account and we have to do the best we can and meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you brought up a good point about how like nutrition is just so emotionally invested. I think, yeah, that's that's exactly, you hit the nail on the head why people struggle with nutrition so much more than training. And also the fact that, yeah, like you said, Training is like one to two hours a day at most. And then the other 23, 22 hours, you got to focus on your nutrition, which is obviously much harder. It's like stuff you got to spend more time thinking about. And also, like like you said, with the being emotionally invested, like training, you can just show up, follow this plan and like get it done without really much like thought into it. Whereas nutrition, you kind of have to like manage all of these emotions and like you know, growing up with like, you know, mommy's like special recipe for whatever, or like if you're someone who stress eats a lot, or if you someone like you growing up, you have this like trauma related incident that you're like covering up now with food and all that. It's just like a lot of stuff to manage. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people use food as a coping mechanism, and we can't overlook that. So that's, that's important. And another thing too, is like, as personal trainers, we're not qualified to 
help people around those things like we can do what we can we have some stuff in our toolbox our arsenal to help people but if somebody has a legitimate like real issue around food i suggest that they work with some sort of therapist or dietitian as well as a coach and you know in cahoots with a coach as well to work on those things and make sure that you know everything that you're doing is is going to be not adding more stress to your plate but taking some stress off of your plate so anyway, sorry, Andy, didn't mean to interrupt you. No worries. Yeah. Um, I think as well, like just to reiterate, it's not easy at all, by the way, like the nutrition side is, is literally it. When I say it's hard, it is really, really difficult because of all those issues that you brought up. Um, and I think one of the things is like, when it comes to training, it's like you gain something from training, like, you're gaining strength, you're gaining muscle. That's why you're going there. But like when, when you're focusing on nutrition, okay, we're not talking about calorie surplus necessarily in this instance, or, or even maintenance really, but like more so calorie deficit. Like it's a, you're sacrificing, you know, you're sacrificing calories and you're sacrificing enjoyment. Um, you're sacrificing going out with friends, family, to a certain extent. Of course, we don't recommend, like, being too extreme with that kind of thing. But, you know, it is a sacrifice because you are saying no to more things so that your body uses its own fuel sources to fuel your daily energy requirements. Mm. Uh, so it, it draws from its fat stores as opposed to you using food as the as the source of fuel. Um so it's a sacrifice uh, and that's difficult. Um, but one thing is like, even if you're not fully accurate with your tracking, it, it's still like, it's still important to track as best you can really. Because that along with the measurements, the pictures and the, the body weight, it's like you can see a clearer picture with all of those, all of those metrics. Um, and it is just much more difficult to manage as a coach without those things, in my opinion. Um, not all of my clients track calories for, for certain reasons, uh, but it is much easier to, to manage clients' progress if they do track. And, you know, if they're not 100% accurate, well, like we've discussed many times before in this podcast, you're never going to be 100% accurate because, you know, even the reporting on the out the box of certain foods, it's not required to be accurate because it's just going to be so difficult every single time to be accurate anyway, you know, but like as long as you're accurate as best as you can be and that we can see trends in like a rough calorie estimate of what you're eating on a daily basis in comparison to your average weight, we can say like, okay, how's the trends of those? Do we need to make changes here so that we can see more changes here? But every successful dieter really has some kind of cognitive restraint, whether that is counting calories or whether that's doing some kind of like fasting where they are going out of their way to, to give themselves some kind of restriction. Um, there has to be something like that in place, some kind of rule in place for it to, to work out really. I think that's what yeah. drew me to intermittent fasting when I was new to all this is because intermittent fasting was such an easy way 
to create a calorie deficit. I just would cut out. I generally eat the same things and then I would just generally cut out breakfast and fast and have coffee. And then that created about a 500 plus calorie deficit. So it was a really easy, nice way to get into a deficit without me having to worry about tracking calories. So as much as coaches these days like to hate on intermittent fasting, it's like it worked very well for me for the first probably year of my fitness journey. And it helped me get pretty lean for the first time ever. Yeah. I think it's like people, coaches, from my opinion, don't necessarily hate on intermittent fasting. I think it's more the fact that the people that push intermittent fasting are pushing the wrong, pushing it for the wrong reasons. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about autophagy and that kind of thing because I, I honestly don't know enough about that to say whether that's true or not whether that is you know okay we can talk about that in a second then (laughs) but like um when we talk about things like you can gain more muscle because growth hormone is elevated (laughs) during intermittent fasting it's like apparently according to like lay norton and a few other people that is not a huge driver of hypertrophy anyway that's not like an anabolic signaling hormone Maybe maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe I've misinterpreted right, that. Okay, so so there's that. People are pushing that. People are also pushing the similar thing to keto, where it's like you're going to be burning more fat as fuel because you're going to have you know depleted your glycogen stores overnight. Therefore, you're going to be burning fat as fuel, and then not considering the fact that it's all about energy balance at the end of the day which is calories coming in and calories going out and this is the thing that bugs me about keto as well it's like keto are very quick to push you on turn your body into a fat burning machine you know keto you burn so much fat on keto but they fail to mention you're also turning your body into a fat storing machine like you are literally storing so much more fat but you're burning more fat, of course, because you're consuming so much more fat. Like mm-hmm. it's all about the balance of how much you're burning and how much you're storing. It's not just about the fact that you're burning a lot. It doesn't make a difference. You could be eating the same number of calories, burn a lot of fat, but still be the same weight and still be just as fat. Um, and that's one of the things about intermittent fasting that I think coaches pick up on and that start to educate other people on. So I think that that's one of the reasons because I also. I also pick on intermittent fasting from t- now and now and again for for these same topics, but I do intermittent fasting for the yeah. most part. Yeah, because for the same thing, like I don't want to wake up and worry about making breakfast. I yeah. like to wake up, have a coffee, get on with my shit. But I have milk in my coffee. I'll have a protein shake. You know, and so. Yeah, it's just it's just less yeah. shit to worry about. You don't have to worry about as much cooking and there's also less food to track. <laughs> you don't have to yeah. track. You don't have to track as much. You literally Yeah. You just have to track like two meals and a snack, which is nice. And you can eat larger meals. Now, who intermittent fasting may not be for is probably people who have a emotional eating issues, binge eating issues, um, poor relationship with food. You might do better or like 
I have some clients who are ravenous nighttime snackers. Like at night, they get crazy hungry and, and all that. And so counterintuitively, you might be like, oh, well, intermittent fasting will be great because they can save most of their calories for nighttime. That works for some people, but for others, it it does the opposite. For others, eating a larger breakfast with lots of protein and healthy fats actually keeps them more satiated and mitigates that nighttime binging so it just depends it's so individual for every single person Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i would say my personal experiences with intermittent fasting like it got to like the the, like the unhealthy point of like where i was like counting down the minutes until i could break my fast or like i I would be asking myself oh does this break my fast like can i have this on my Mm -hmm. fast and whatever like i would be the guy who like i mean immediately i do enjoy my black coffee now but i'll be the guy who's like i can't put cream in my coffee because that's gonna break my fast (laughs) and then it's like when when we really think about like the main driving mechanism is calories in calories out and being in a calorie deficit and it doesn't really matter how many meals you eat it in like as far as like the research that supports it now so yeah i think as coaches, we should be pushing the foundational principles that get people towards the goals that they want, not necessarily like any specific like method that we're marrying ourselves to. Like, obviously, different methods work for different people, but uh, do you have to like teach people, hey, this is the main driving mechanism, like calorie deficit, no matter how you want to get into it, whether someone like truly can say that they, uh, I don't, I can't understand this, but when tr- someone can truly say they love keto or when someone can truly say they love intermittent fasting and that works with their lifestyle, that's like totally up to them. But at the end of the day, it's about understanding what is the primary mechanism, what is the primary driver behind the things that we want to achieve. And like, basically that that that's it but that's what we talk about when we or that's what we mean when we talk about individualizing your program and finding what works best for you it's not so much that hey this this works for me because keto it in itself works best for me but it's the fact that keto helps me stay in a calorie deficit which is what is going to get me the results yeah i've had a few people say to me like i can only lose weight when i do keto And they may have only lost weight in the past when they've done keto, but that's not necessarily why they've lost weight. You know, it's like the reason that they've lost weight is because they've been able to get into a calorie deficit because the extreme approach of keto. Now, I don't know, like if they may have lost weight in the past having not done keto, but they just think it's too slow potentially, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I agree with what you're saying there. Like the print, the main foundational principles of a calorie calorie deficit apply to any of the methods that you choose to do. And no, none of the methods are wrong, really. But then it's like, as coaches, we are here to educate you on what call out the BS, really. You know, there is a lot of people that are going to push keto. They're going to push intermittent fasting with all of these benefits that are pretty much lies you know and they're trying to sell you on their program or whatever like um that is sold on lies and it doesn't really sit too well with us so that's what we got going on <laughs> cool and it jeff and in it and it right all right i think we're gonna wrap it up what do you guys think yeah sounds good cool 
Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Hopefully, you guys found this enjoyable, helpful, relatable, entertaining, whatever the hell. Please just give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And signing off, we'll see you guys next week. See you next week. Peace.